Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Professor J.C.D. Clark. Professor Clark's a well-established, hugely significant historian of the long 18th century, and today we're going to be talking to Professor Clark about one of his most recent projects, a new book on Thomas Paine, Britain, America and France in the Age of Enlightenment and Revolution, recently published by Oxford University Press. Professor Clark, thank you for your time and welcome to the show. Thank you so much and good morning to you. Before we begin talking about the book itself, could you give us something of a a retrospective on your many achievements to date? Well, uh, as an historian, I was uh, educated at Cambridge and I think in retrospect, I was very lucky to be around when uh, a generation of great scholars was still in post and I, I could learn from them. And I began as someone who was very interested in politics and also came to appreciate the uh, significance of the history of political thought and also of religion. (coughs) From there, I went to Oxford. I published on what I've called the long 18th century in uh, the British Isles. That is between the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 and the Great Reform Act of 1832, uh, I include the American Revolution as an Anglophone event. I'm interested also in the French Revolution. And the significance of that period, I think, is that it's crucial for um, the late 20th century account of modernization. I was taught that theory, as we all were. Gradually, over time, I came to doubt it. And my work explores uh, a number of ways of questioning the validity of that categorization, modernity. Now, one of the things that we've learned from your work over the years and these many very distinguished contributions, revolution and rebellion, English society, 1688 to 1832, language of liberty from reformation to reform, which is a book that we use a lot in teaching uh, in Belfast. One of the things we've learned is that we can't take any of our assumptions for granted until we've read your comments about them. Uh, That's true also of the subject of this book, Thomas Paine, isn't it? 
Who was Payne and why does he matter in the world today? I suggest he matters because Payne was England's greatest revolutionary. No other leading revolutionary figure, I think, in the whole of English history uh, was at the centre of events, great events, as Payne was so often. No other uh, leader in the revolutionary cause was an author of books which sold so widely and had such an impact in their day. Payne is also important, I would suggest, because he has been um, he's been overlaid by a series of um, explanations as people have recruited him retrospectively to justify their own causes. And I, what I want to do is to, rather like cleaning an 18th century portrait, to remove layers of varnish so that we can get back to the man himself in his age, distinguishing that from the later uses to which he was put. Now, in the book that you've shared with us, Payne is still, I was going to say a radical, that's a question you've termed, he's still an extremely important political figure, but he, he exists in a different way. He makes a different kind of contribution, doesn't he, to the kinds of things that we have taken for granted up to this point so often? He does, and the most general way of explaining that, I think, is to say that Payne, like other famous revolutionary figures, is much more the sort of person who can speak to the general preoccupations of his age rather than being an original figure who maps out the future uh, course of development. Uh, and I think we, be, we, we still exist in the present day with a series of what I call heroic assumptions about authors in the history of political thought and also about political activists. I have come to question that, and I don't wish to diminish Payne's importance or to, to disparage him, but I want to emphasize and to raise up the importance of those thousands of activists and authors who were writing and doing things during Payne's lifetime. He contributed to a debate much more than he framed its terms. So we read your book, and it's a very formidable book. Uh, how many how many words is it actually? Oh, that's a very, very good question. Give, give me notice of that question. I, I can look it up. Far too much is the answer. I'm I'm sorry to say. Almost five hundred pages uh, of of you know characteristically densely argued and and and, and wise wisely reflecting uh, material. But having read your book, how should we see Payne interacting in the world in which he lives? As I think a catalyst very often, a trigger of things which had the potential to happen rather than as an original thinker. Now, your book is organised in, in parts as well as chapters. The first part focuses upon discourses uh, and contexts. What are some of the most important discourses in this period and how should we see pain fitting into these? Well, the first part of my book tries to outline some of the discourses in which he did not fit. For example, he was not a champion of the working class. He was not a champion of anti-slavery. He was not a champion of women's rights. He was much more uh, a figure from a small town in England in the early 18th century. And the discourses to which he did subscribe had a lot to do with popular participation in politics, 
but very, very little to do with what we call democracy. He talked about rights, but he didn't talk the language of universal human rights that we've come to recognize from the 1970s. Instead, he was preoccupied by two things, which I think we've now largely forgotten. One is the significance of what I call the dynastic idiom in the 18th century. Payne was an enemy of monarchs and of aristocrats on the same basis. Uh, And we have to understand that to understand the significance of his enormous impact. But we must also understand that he he is bypassed. Uh, Nobody now spends their time denouncing Queen Elizabeth II, at least not in England. Uh, They are locked in conflict over other matters. And secondly, the second discourse in which Paine is keenly uh, involved and in which he is extremely well informed is the whole area of religion. And I want to argue that Paine's religion, he was a deist, was extremely important to him, uh, rather than any secular idea of progress or any secular idea of human rights. Now, religion matters in terms of Paine's biography, doesn't it? You explained to us that his family connections include Quakerism as well as the Church of England. How how does that parental influence impact upon his later thinking? Can can we work this out? uh, To answer that question shortly, no. A lot about Paine's early life is obscure, and we are piecing together fragments. Uh, We do know that his family was uh, Anglican, uh, but his father was uh, Quaker in his upbringing. We do know that Paine was married in the Church of England twice, Uh, So he must have been a communicant member of the Church of England. We know that he was uh, a member of the vestry in Lewis in Sussex. Uh, And so clearly he was uh, actively engaged uh, with some of the religious issues of his day. We think there is some evidence, although it's not entirely reliable, that he was active in early Methodism. So Payne, we think... Uh, was engaged in a personal religious journey, uh, which found expression ultimately in deism, on which he wrote an enormous amount. And to say that Payne is a deist is rather like saying, um, if you read the whole of Isaac Newton's works, you will think that that Newton was a theologian who did a bit of physics on the side. Similarly, Payne goes on and on endlessly about the significance of revolution. And he did a bit of politics on the side. Now, you mentioned politics there and another aspect of the discursive world into which Paine is born is Jacobitism. Can we work out how that influences his thinking about the issues that he's concentrating on? Paine, I emphasise, was not a Jacobite. He was the opposite. He was an anti-Jacobite. But just as in the 1950s, it used to be said that people who were um, cold warriors, who were bitterly anti-communist, actually had the pattern of their thought dictated to them by their opponents. So also, I think it was true of Payne and and of many of his contemporaries uh, that they talked about politics in a dynastic idiom because monarchs symbolized uh, a whole series of policy choices 
and monarchs were symbolized by vast errors of theory. They were supported and um, explained to their subjects through large bodies of theory. So that Payne, when he disparages George III, goes on into the 1790s, calling George III the Elector of Hanover, which is exactly what the Jacobites used to call him. It doesn't mean that Payne was a Jacobite, but what it does mean is that Payne uh, was preoccupied with the theme of monarchy, which is extremely important in his day, all the way through the American Revolution, all the way through the French Revolution, and his own attitudes to um, that central institution were uh, can only be understood, I suggest, in relation to um, the leading preoccupations of a society. Can I make one more point on that issue? For most of the 20th century, <coughs> historians supposed that the what they, the English Marxist historians supposed that what they called the English Revolution of the 1640s was much, much, much more important than the revolution of 1688. Now that balance has changed. And for people in the 18th century, 1642 was surprisingly unimportant in the long, uh, long retrospect. 1688, by contrast, uh, triggered rebellion, war, internet European war, uh, and division within society, which lasted for a very long time. This was the world in which Payne grew up, not the world in, of 1642. One of the things that I found most intriguing about this part of your discussion was your emphasis that the world of early Methodism, like the associated worlds of, of early 18th century descent or mid-18th mid century descent, were often driven by certain kinds of political um, scepticism and I should have known this, but I had never realised that the Countess of Huntington was a Jacobite, that that early supporter of, of Calvinistic Methodism. She was in it up to her neck, and her husband even more so. Uh, so that, for example, when John Wesley uh, preaches his famous sermon in Oxford in 1744, which denounces the Hanoverian church and state, it, it is, in effect... His 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 uh, rising of 1745, uh, he has to leave Oxford. The Countess of Huntington advises him to go north to Newcastle. Newcastle, why Newcastle is known to be full of Jacobite sympathisers, and he is there on the spot when Charles Edward lands in 1745. John Wesley is, has by that stage formally renounced Jacobitism, but. Um, it is all around him. The people he was brought up among, his family, his early contacts at Oxford, his religious associates, shared an attitude to the society in which they lived. They thought that it wasn't just wrong in this or that minor respect. He didn't identify particular faults that he could, he could put right with a reform act of this kind or that kind. His attitude, as was the attitude of George Whitfield, was that the whole of society was rotten. Uh, fish stinks from the head down, as the Chinese, I believe, say. 
and they pointed to the Hanoverian monarchs on the throne as the origin of the profound corruption of their society. And it's this <coughs> rejection of um, society across the board that has both a religious and a dynastic dimension. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Now, this uh, theme fits into one of the themes that runs through much of your writing, which is about the political meaning of religion in this period, um, especially, I suppose, from the perspective of the Thomas Paine book, The Political Meaning of Dissent. Um, you have a wonderful line in the book where you describe Paine stumbling by accident into the American Revolution and, and discovering that America, in inverted commas, has in some senses been formed by the revivalistic preaching of people like George Whitfield. Yes. What, what, what is Paine's role in the American Revolution as you describe it in this book? Paine shuts his eyes to the religious composition of the 13 colonies. That's very surprising in a way. But what he's doing is to try to find a common denominator of discourse that can be agreed to by all the different denominations in America. And what he finds there is a receptive audience for his deism. Uh, because deism is an international movement. It is present in England, primarily in the Church of England. It's present also in the American colonies, especially among the elite. And Paine can say things about monarchy and about churches uh, especially the Church of England, which resonate with colonial Protestant nonconformists and which resonate with colonial uh, American deists. He is a, a, a brilliant journalist who can express what people think, but also find common ground or apparently find common ground on which they can unite. Now, as you worked through the religious aspect of the American Revolution, did you find that it confirmed the leading arguments of the language of liberty, your earlier book on this subject? Uh, I think it did, um, but I would also add, well, I want to add to the language of li liberty more about the common denominator that Payne's deism um, provided. He couldn't really go public on that. Uh, because in a land of orthodox Trinitarian believers, uh, deism is still, before the American Revolution, uh, a very hot topic. You tended to keep it quiet if you were a deist, or if you didn't keep it quiet, you paid quite a high price for um, coming up with your beliefs. 
So Paine was not uh, a campaigner for deism during the American Revolution, uh, but he did uh, find ways of mobilizing American opinion in, in the direction in which it was going. And the direction in which it was going was primarily dictated by its Protestant nonconformist heritage. In our own day, we have seen the rise of radical Islam reveal the United States in ways that it's not willing to uh, admit to itself as the land that the Protestant dissent has made. And if you stand outside the United States today, it is becoming more and more obvious uh, that the Protestant dissenting inheritance is of profound importance to the present day. It was of even more importance in the 1770s. Now, in political terms, Paine's interaction with American dissent, in inverted commas, or American low-church Protestantism, uh, was not really framed in terms of Presbyterian resistance theory, which is you tell us was, was you know circulating widely uh, within that particular part uh, of uh, the colonies. So h- how does his deism interact with what we might think of as being the much more finely tuned, um, intellectually serious tradition of politicised religious dissent uh, that, it, that already exists in the colonies? Uh, he didn't. He didn't engage with that. Remember, he's an Anglican. Uh, and he's not learned in Protestant nonconformist resistance theory. Indeed, if he were to have been, then his impact would have been geographically much more confined in the American um, colonies. Uh, what he is appealing to is driven by deism in that he is arguing uh, what he believes is that people do not need churches to uh, approach God that they have an immediate access to God. And without churches as necessary uh, ratifiers of political authority, it follows also that individuals have uh, a license to act as free agents uh, in any way they like. Paine is not a Democrat because he believes in universal manhood suffrage, still less universal suffrage. Paine is a populist because he believes that everybody is equidistant from God and that there are no institutions which, as he will put it, stand between the individual and God. Now, there's a second revolution that Paine finds himself involved in, another unexpected revolution, uh, this one occurring in France, in some ways, well, many ways, much more horrific uh, than anything that happens in North America. How does your reconstruction of Paine's life show him interacting with that context? It shows him knowing much less about the French Revolution than we used to think was the case, just as I've argued that Paine knew much less about the American Revolution than we thought and was partly out of his depth in trying to act as a politician in the 13 colonies or really in, in, in Pennsylvania. So he, he was even more out of his depth when he went to France and found that far from having a, a unique insight into the nature and causes of the French Revolution, he was at sea and had to ride, try to ride a wave uh, and to survive when the wave broke.
it's it's quite a radical, to use that unfortunate term, reconstruction of Payne's life, isn't it? It's, it presses us to rethink uh, a lot of the assumptions that, that we have taken for granted so often up to this point. Including, if I might interrupt you there, including the assumption that revolutions have central or intrinsic meanings. And if we do assume that, then we naturally reach for um, eloquent and high-profile authors to give us shortcuts to those essential meanings. Now, I'm challenging that notion. I don't think that is a tenable position. Certainly, it can't be said of the French Revolution that Paine's Rights of Man, when it was translated into French, had a significant impact. Uh, there are other scholars, Trish Lochran is an important one, who have argued that the circulation of Paine's common sense in colonial America was much, much less than his admirers in the early 20th century had assumed. And I, too, want to scale down Paine's um, significance in the American Revolution, not to dismiss it entirely. He did have a role, indeed an important role, but I don't think it was um, the role of a framer of new ideas it was rather the role of a catalyst. In the French Revolution, he didn't play the part of a catalyst. France is a society of 26, 28 million intelligent, literate people who are preoccupied with French affairs. The American Revolution was very French. I believe we're seeing uh, scholars now admit that the American Revolution was very American or Anglo-American. And that moves us away from the old assumption um, which came out of the Second World War, that the American Revolution was the first act uh, uh, and the French Revolution was the second act of a, a common drama. We're now seeing the American Revolution as an American or Anglo-American event, the French Revolution as a French event, and they become much more um, paradoxical, much more um, catastrophic, much more... Uh, violent uh, than we used to think. So really, I suppose one of the big cumulative effects of, of your work over this series of uh, books that we've mentioned, but especially in the Thomas Paine book that we're talking about principally today, is is, is to make us think that these issues are, are important, but in different ways, that Paine is a crucial figure, but in a different way that, that, uh, that, than the ways that we have thought up to this point. Yes, that's exactly true. What do you think or what do you hope will be the legacy of the Thomas Paine book? How do you think or how do you hope it will impact upon uh, future scholarship in this field? Principally, I hope, by engaging with um, what has been a leading preoccupation in Western countries since the 1970s, and that is the extraordinary explosion of natural rights theory. Uh, it is everywhere these days. Every group which wants to make a claim in the public arena does so by appealing to natural rights. And an historiography has been created, a genealogy, if you like, which stretches back to the 18th century and to the American and French revolutions and builds on those two events the authority of universal human rights in the present world. I want to suggest that universal human rights in the present world is not very good at delivering good things to suffering humanity. 
In fact, it is in retreat everywhere. And one reason for that is that it has been falsely diagnosed. Its historical origins have been misunderstood, and we need to revert to Thomas Paine for a better understanding, both of how revolutions happen and also of how uh, good things in the public arena are delivered to the populations of Western states. That is rather an, um, uh, an ambition, as you can see. But I believe that the tide of discussion is moving in that direction, not because I said so, but because natural rights theory, the theory of universal human rights, is failing to deliver on its promise. Well, Professor Clark, we've taken up a great deal of your time this morning and we've enjoyed the discussion enormously. But before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Uh, yes, it's a book on the Enlightenment. Indeed, it's the book that I was writing when uh, an invitation to write a 6,000-word essay on Thomas Paine um, intruded on me. And I, I, I accepted the invitation to write a 6,000-word essay, which was indeed published in the Yale edition of Thomas Paine's collected works. I accepted that, that invitation because I thought it would be easy to do. I thought I knew all about Paine. I'd read him for years. I'd taught him for years. I'd, I'd written a few pages on him. I thought it would be easy to write a 6,000-word interpretive essay. I found the opposite was true. The more I read of Paine and his contemporaries, the more I realized I had not understood him. He was much more interesting and much more important than I had ever thought. But now I get back to the book on the Enlightenment. Some of us thought you didn't believe in the Enlightenment, Professor Clark. Well, uh, not at all. I'm on the side of the angels, as you know, and all matters. But this book will show why uh, the Enlightenment is a term of historiographical art which was invented much later than we thought, and why in the long 18th century there wasn't one interesting and important thing going on organized by the, by, by the notion of the Enlightenment. Instead, there were many interesting and important things, and we need to pay more attention, more sympathetic and scholarly attention to those many important things than we have done hitherto. Well, Professor Clark, thank you so much for coming on to the, the, the programme today to talk about this new book, Thomas Paine, Britain, America and France in the Age of Enlightenment and Revolution, just published by Oxford University Press. And thank you so much for sharing uh, news of uh, your, your, your next project on the Enlightenment itself. We look forward to seeing that when it comes out. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your invitation. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.